Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last Sunday we started a series called Church, Why Bother? And uh, you might think that's a strange name for a series that a pastor came up with. And I actually stole it from a book by Phil Yancey, Philip Yancey, um, who wrote a book by the same title. And one of the quotes in his book uh, that I like to start out the, the time together with is this. Once we have a vision of the church as participants, we can help it become the kind of place God intended. And I think oftentimes, especially in modern day America, we have become consumers And all we do is we go around consuming, 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 and we often don't participate. We rather consume. Even a football game, a Broncos game, which I love the Broncos and it's fun, but we're still consumers. We think we're participating, but we're not. In fact, modern day commercials are are showing this with this, uh, I think there's no other way to call it, but superstition where these four guys get into a car and they all think, okay, where were we sitting when we went down to the game because we won last week? And what were we wearing because last week we won and we need to all be sitting in the same place and wearing the same things and saying the same stuff and eating at the same place and drinking the same stuff. And we have this notion that we actually impact the outcome of a football game when that couldn't be further from reality I mean, there's no way, just look at me, that I actually impact the outcome of a Bronco game. And especially via television, watching. But church is not supposed to be that way. The church is meant to be a place where we participate. I love that part of the quote where Philip says, if we get a vision of God's intention for the church, then we can participate in making that happen. And it's interesting because even in church, we have become consumers. We become consumers uh, partly because people like me are to blame, because we think, ah, we'll just make you sit for 30, 40 minutes and lecture at you, and that's a good way to make things change in your lives and in the world. And quite honestly, that's one of the least effective means of changing people's lives, is having a talking head. So I probably should just quit and move on and do something else. It's, found, it's been shown to be rather ineffective in changing people's lives. But what changes people's lives? Today we're going to look at a scripture, a passage where a man's life is radically changed. A man turns from a life of sin and starts to follow Jesus Christ. And one of the things that I want to drive home for us the next few weeks and today too is the kind of church, the vision that God has for his church, and specifically our church. And it shouldn't be necessarily unique to our church. I have a book called Church Unique. And every church does have a unique role it can play in a community. Every church has different passions and different interests and different people that come and make up that body of Christ. And those people are going to do different things and be interested in different things than other churches in town. But in reality, churches can't differ too much in what they're seeking to do because we got our marching orders in the scriptures. 
In this passage, we're going to see what part of Jesus' view of church is, how it should be. And then the question for all of us is, as participants in this, how can we participate in that? You're not meant to be just a consumer. You're not meant to be a spectator. You're not meant to be someone who comes and sits and watches. You're supposed to be on the field. Friday night, I was wanting to be on the field a little bit, partly because of my size. I would have helped them. Our linemen gave up 30 to 70 pounds across the board. And my poor kid, he didn't have anywhere to run a lot of the night. And there's times that you want to get out and participate. And church should be one of those things that it should well up inside of you a desire to participate, not to watch, not to throw bricks my dad used to have one of those foam bricks when you got frustrated with the Broncos. You could throw it at the TV. You know, when you got upset, you can just toss that thing and hit the television. You'd have to worry about breaking it. But you felt a little better because you threw a foam brick at the television. And there's something in us that should evoke a desire to participate in the life of a church. In this story, we're going to see a man who... His life is radically changed. In fact, many people would have written him off. He would have actually written himself off. He would have seen himself as a hopeless cause. How do I know this? Because of his job. He was a tax collector. Do you want to know a really unpopular job in the world? Be a tax collector. I don't think those folks have ever been popular with anybody. And in ancient Israel, see, the Romans were really smart. And it makes sense, right? Because they they ruled most of the ancient world for quite a long time. And they had a really good system of taxation. And the way they went about this was instead of sending a Roman to to collect the taxes, because you might not like the Roman, you might kill the Roman, you might... uh, you know, try to defy the Roman. They got one of your neighbors, one of your friends, one of your relatives to be the tax collector. And the way they went about it was they, the way they incentivized this, the way that they got a person to want to do this was, here's how much tax you need to collect from these folks. And whatever you collect above that is yours. Now, People didn't vote on taxes back then. It was taxation without representation. And nobody had a musket yet. So they had no way of figuring out how to take out the the Romans. And so folks didn't know necessarily what the tax rate was. Just think of that gig. I mean, if you want to get rich quick scheme, figure out a way that you can have the authority of the governing empire to let you collect, I don't know, 1% from everybody in town? 5% from everybody in town of their income? 10% of everybody in town from their income? You're going to live pretty well. So Matthew is one of these turncoats. 
Matthew is one of these guys who's Jewish, who becomes a tax collector for the Romans, and whatever he takes above the tax rate is his. He was an on-purpose sinner. He was somebody who had turned his back on Israel. He was somebody who turned his back on God. He was somebody who nobody liked. He was a hopeless case. Now let's see how Jesus treats this guy. In Luke chapter 5, verse 27. After this, he, Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi. Now I called him Matthew and ancient people had names like this. My middle name, if, my, if you've ever heard my mom, she'd yell at me, Stephen Todd Winecoop. So one of the names I respond to sometimes is Todd. I have a nickname. Uh, Coops in high school was my nickname. College was my nickname. I respond to that. There's people at Cherry Hill still call me that. Matthew, Levi, he has multiple names. You have multiple names. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Now, a couple things I want to point out here. All of us have been called. Every single person who is a believer and follower in Jesus has been called by God. This isn't the only place we get this. This is a doctrine that we see throughout Scripture. You see it in Romans chapter 8. Theologians like to sit around and argue and discuss all the things in Romans chapter 8. But one thing that is clear from Romans chapter 8 is that those he predestined, he also called. Now, don't get all uptight about predestined and what does that mean? What I want to tell you is that nobody argues about called in that passage. Those God predestined, he also called. Every single person who follows Jesus Christ, who calls him their Lord and Savior, has been called by God. Matthew was called. And what was the call that Jesus issued to him? Follow me. Some of you work in the medical field, and you know what it's like to be on call. Some of you work in the oil industry, and you also know what it's like to be on call. You have those times where you have to remain close to town, close to your place of employment. You have to carry a phone. Back in the day, I remember it was a pager. Now it's a a cell phone. You have to keep the phone nearby. And if they call, you got to go. You see, those who have been called, their time is not their own. Their lives are not their own. There's a governing principle. There's a governing entity that says, hey, we need you. Come, quick. This is broken. Come, quick, fix it. Find somebody that takes care of this. And that's the idea with this notion of on call, of being called. You are not your own. See how Matthew responds when he's called? Leaving everything. Leaving everything. He left everything behind and he followed Jesus. You see, what in your life would you be willing to leave behind to follow Christ? If you put it in terms of a doctor, 
having to leave dinner with friends, a nurse having to leave a baby shower, people who have things that they want to do and be at, but they have to say no because there's something higher, more important, more pressing calling them away. How many of us as followers of Jesus think of ourselves like that? How many of us as followers of Jesus think that the most important thing in my life is Jesus? That when Jesus calls, I answer. That when Jesus says, follow me, do this, do that, I don't have this internal dialogue with him of, well, you know, I don't know if that's right. I don't know if you're correct. I don't really, in in essence, we're saying, I don't trust you or I don't agree with you. This isn't an option. Sometimes we see it as an option that those who follow Jesus and get radical about it are the ones who are really excited about being Christians. And we think that there's two classifications. There's those of us who have the American dream and Jesus tatched on. And then there's those who get a little crazy about it. And most of us want to be in the first group. We want to have the American dream and we want to have Jesus in a nice little box on Sunday mornings or Bible study or our quiet time. We just kind of, every once in a while, we want to pull out Jesus and take a look and go, yep, he's still there. Matthew, Matthew, his, his Roman Empire dream got squashed. And Jesus said, follow me. And by the way, that was Jesus' common refrain, and he said this to many people. And I'm convinced he said it to even more than what are shown for us in Scripture. And there were some in Scripture, it's recorded, who didn't follow, who chose things in this world, things in this life as being more important than Jesus. So each of us who are following Jesus, we've been called. We have to keep that in mind because Jesus may require something out of us. Uh, Bailey's boyfriend, Trace, he decided to enlist in the Marines. And he has a calling on his life now. Time is not his own. And in about five weeks, he will graduate and he will actually become a Marine. And I talked to his dad the other day, and Trace, who was not a large person before he left, has dropped over 20 pounds in his training. And I would imagine he'd like to eat better food. And I would imagine he would like to be able to spend his time the way he'd like to spend it. I would imagine there are things that he would like to do, but instead he has to wake up at 4.30 with somebody yelling at him and telling him, what he will do today. Imagine if Jesus was a drill sergeant. How many people would follow him? Crazy thing is, Jesus isn't a drill sergeant. He's actually a general. Actually, he's a commander-in-chief. Actually, he's lord of lords. Actually, he's king of kings. Imagine if he started acting like that. Imagine if in your life he started throwing his weight around. You know, I asked you to do that. Perhaps we don't take him seriously enough. 
Maybe we've treated Jesus too much as Jesus as our homeboy or Jesus as our boyfriend, and we need to think of Jesus as our king. Matthew did. That's how he responds. He rose and followed him. Then he says, And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? You like grumblers? They're some of my favorite people. I live with three of them sometimes. And they would shout back, we live with one. See, at some level, we're all grumblers. But what are they grumbling about? Did you catch what they said? Why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? Now, before I start ripping on the Pharisees, which is one of my favorite pastimes, as you know, let us stop and say something important. The Pharisees have a point. Pharisees have a legitimate point here. Number one, they're right. Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners. Number two, we have statements that counteract what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is hanging out with the wrong crowd. Bad company corrupts good character. Birds of a feather flock together. We have the axioms that inform us that if we spend time with the wrong people, they will have a tendency to infect us, that they will corrupt us, that if you spend time with the wrong folks, who and what you listen to will determine what you do. It's a principle. It's true. You see it in the Proverbs. You see it in the Old Testament. And Jesus has the audacity, the nerve to spend time with the wrong crowd. So... Their grumblings aren't necessarily wrong. In fact, I would venture to guess that the vast majority of people here today, there's a group that if somebody you hold in high esteem were to spend time with them, you think, why do they spend time with you fill in the blank? I've got some suggestions for you. Muslims, homosexuals. Hindus, black people, Hispanics, poor folk, rich people, smart people, dumb people. I mean, it can be anything. Whatever side of the track you're on, you can find somebody on the other side of the tracks that you go, ooh, those people. Every single one of us is like that. Every single one of us has a group we grumble against. Here's one. Democrats, (laughs) Republicans, socialists, capitalists. Who's your group? You've got one. And if you don't admit that you've got one, you're deceived. Just spend some time on Facebook. Who are the people that irritate you, that you decide to unfriend? Or spend some time in real life. Who are the people that irritate you, that you decide to unfriend? 
That's your group. Who are they? That's who Jesus is spending time with. And Jesus is going to do something. He's actually actually already done it. We didn't read the passage. But Jesus is doing something that upsets the apple cart. Now, this was long before germ theory. But one of the things that the Old Testament prohibited was for you to spend time with people who had leprosy. And leprosy was a horrible, it is a horrible, debilitating disease. It literally is the rotting of your skin off your body. And it's horribly, uh, it, it's, 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 it's a terribly aggressive disease. And you can get it just by being in close proximity with somebody who's got it. Now, we understand these things. We have microscopes. We have germ theory. We have viruses. We understand how these things work. And we know that if somebody's really sick, they need to be quarantined. They need to be kept away from everybody else. And if you go in and see them, like remember when Ebola was blowing up in Africa and you would watch the medical workers seeking to care for people who were infected and they would, they would put on not just one pair of gloves, but two. They would put goggles. They would put a face mask. They would put special suits on. And as soon as they were done, they would take those things off, throw them away or burn them because they didn't want to get it. In the Old Testament law, they had laws about not spending time with lepers, but they also had other laws. They had laws that talked about not just being physically infected. They had a worldview that you could be spiritually infected and morally infected if you spent time with the wrong people. In fact, in the Old Testament law, they had laws that you couldn't eat certain things prepared in certain ways. Today we call it kosher. And really what was going on was God was making it so that you could not do one of life's most intimate things with somebody from the wrong side of the tracks. You couldn't have a meal with somebody. When you invite somebody over to your home for a meal, you're communicating something, aren't you? You're communicating, hey, I like you. I want to spend time with you. I want to welcome you into my home. I want to welcome you into my life. I want to, send, I want to spend more time with you, get to know you better. And in the ancient world, it was even more of a gesture than today. But we know that it's true that whoever we spend time eating with, we become like those people. Jesus, right before this story about eating, with tax collectors and sinners. Earlier on, he heals a leper. And the leper throws himself at Jesus' feet, and he says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus, by the way, in throwing himself at the feet of Jesus, he was breaking the law. Because he couldn't, he had to walk with, he had to give a wide, uh, you know, big bubble. We all have about a three-foot bubble around us. Uh, lepers had to have like a 20-foot bubble around them. And as they approached somebody who was healthy, they had to yell, unclean, unclean. And this man came and threw himself at Jesus' feet. If you're willing, you can heal me. And Jesus reached down, says, I'm willing, and he touches him. Jesus broke the law in touching him. And Jesus is changing it. Jesus is bringing a whole different dynamic because we know in today's world that if you are around unhealthy people, you will become unhealthy. If you are around somebody who is infected, you could become infected. But Jesus 
He spends time with people who are infected and they become healthy. Jesus is around sinners and they are made clean. Jesus takes this whole principle and he just dumps it on its head because when the kingdom of God breaks in, that's what happens. When Jesus is present, he doesn't have to gown up and gear up to touch somebody with Ebola. His health is contagious. His healing is contagious. His spirituality is contagious. His emotional health is contagious. In fact, Jesus is going to use this metaphor as we keep reading. We saw the grumbling and Jesus answered them. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. kind of a commentary about the folk he is hanging out with, isn't it? (laughs) Pharisees, you're right. They're tax collectors. They're sinners. You're correct. They are unrighteous. In fact, you may not know this, but in the Old Testament law in Leviticus, there is not a single offering available in the Old Testament for intentional sin. There's not a single offering available that if you go out and commit adultery, you can offer this cow or this goat or this dove and your sin will be forgiven. The penalty of those kind of behaviors was to be cut off from the people. And that could either be happening from stoning or banishment from Israel. I mean, if you were an on-purpose intentional sinner under the Old Testament law, which is still in effect at this point in Israel's history when Jesus is walking around because they didn't have the New Testament yet. These folks have given up all hope because they are intentional, on-purpose sinners. And there is nothing in the Old Testament law that can make them right with God. And they know this. It's not lost on them. The only thing that can be done to them is to cut them off from Israel. And that's what the religious leaders are wanting to do. Shun them. And it irritates them that Jesus spends time with them. If you are a real rabbi, if you are truly a holy man, you wouldn't spend time with these people. Jesus says he's a doctor coming to help the sick. Jesus says, I have come to call the unrighteous to repentance, not the righteous. So, Basic application. If you're righteous, then you have no need of Jesus. According to Jesus' own words. He didn't call the righteous. He hasn't come to call the righteous to repentance. I mean, you're good. You've got it all figured out. You don't need his help. You've been able, as an American, to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You've been able to figure these things out. You've been able to keep yourself from sin and from sickness and disease. You have been able to do this. Congratulations. And in this context, you're a Pharisee. At least in their minds. You see, they saw themselves as being righteous. And in one of Jesus' kind of ninja moves... 
He says, I've come for the unrighteous. And in a way, he leaves the ball in our court. Who are you? Which group are you part of? The righteous or the unrighteous? Which group? Are you in the group that Jesus has come for? Or the group that doesn't need Jesus? Further, beyond those individual ways of thinking about this text, there's a corporate way to think about this text. You see, if we remember what Philip Yancey said, that if we see what God's vision is for the church, we can participate in that vision. And what we see Jesus doing is a big picture for the church. You see, the church is to be the most welcoming place in town. The church is supposed to be the place that anyone and everyone is welcome to be at. How many of you have experienced the opposite at churches, though? Where you didn't know the lingo and you didn't know how to dress up right and you didn't clean up properly and you had this thing the last night before and if anybody knew what I had done and now I show up here. And too often churches are full of grumblers. How can you let them in? How can you make it possible for them to be here? Well, we're trying to follow Jesus. Why are we trying to follow him? Because he called us. He told us, follow me. And this is one thing that we saw him doing, welcoming tax collectors and sinners. Around our church, you've heard a phrase, and maybe you've heard this phrase. I used it years ago. I'm going to use it again. We want to be a bottom-rung church. We want to be a church where everybody is welcome, where no one is turned away. A church where you don't have to dress up. A church where you don't have to have your act together to be at. Because if that's the requirement, fire me now. If you have to have your act together to be at this church, you have to know exactly what you're doing all the time. You can't be a sinner. You can't have messed up. I mean, there's nobody in our midst. I mean... If they are, they should pastor. Jesus welcomes sinners. Jesus welcomes, as Paul says in one of his writings, the scum of the earth. You see, Jesus doesn't have a scum filter. He's a scum magnet. Our churches? A friend of mine, we went to Denver Seminary together. His name's Mike Sayers, and he pastors a church uh, downtown Denver called Scum of the Earth. And it's a church for the right-brained and the left out. And they have funny logos, uh, things that they were thinking about putting on their church T-shirts. One of them was, our church could kick your church's butt, (laughs) which I think is a great church logo. Um, and it's true. They, they've got a pretty rough and tumble crowd that goes to their church. And what's really fun to see is that scum of the earth ministers to young people who run away from home on Colfax. But they also minister to down and out executives who have thrown their 
family away in the pursuit of the American dream. They also minister to Denver Seminary professors who go to this community because they're attracted at what is going on at this church, that lives are being changed, that no one is treated like scum, that everyone is welcome. They see the power of this meal that Jesus modeled for us in Matthew. They see that if a church will welcome those who are vastly different than them, they will actually start to experience true community. They see that if a church will quit consuming and just be there for themselves, they see that this place has power and strength. Who will we be? What kind of church will we be? What's the vision for God's church and how will you participate? Will you welcome tax collectors, sinners? Will you welcome the left out of Ray? Will you welcome those who are on the wrong side of the tracks? Will you welcome those who have the wrong creed, the wrong income, the wrong color, the wrong bottom line, the wrong work? Will we welcome them? Or will we be like so many other churches? Can you believe who is at church today? You know, this is such an important issue in the American church today. The American church has become so homogenous. The American church has become so monolithic. It's boring. It's irritating. The church has just become everybody who looks the exact same. And you look at the ancient world, you look at the church when it had power in the book of Acts. And there were Greeks and there were Jews. There were people from all the known nations mingling and worshiping. There were people from sketchy backgrounds and prestigious backgrounds. There were people who were slaves. There were people who were wealthy. They were together And it wasn't just one monolithic group. I would suggest to you that a big reason why the American church has such zero credibility and power in our culture today is because it's a monolithic. Everybody looks the same. Everybody's a clone. Everybody's from the same cookie cutter group. One thing I know is true. English speakers will be a minority in heaven. We will be a very small minority in heaven. Because the church that's growing in power today is in Asia, in Africa. It's exploding. Thousands are being added daily. Why? because they're welcoming the least of these. What will we do? Let us be a church that's bottom rung. Let us be a church that reaches down to the down and out and pulls them up. 
Let us be a church that isn't afraid of getting themselves dirty and messy. Let us be a church that doesn't think, oh my gosh, if I hang out with them, this will happen to me. Let us be a church that is like Jesus, that takes health to people and infects them with it. Spiritual, physical, and emotional health. Let us infect Ray with that. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for Christ and his example. It is so hard. I see in me this consumer that wants a church that looks like me and talks like me and behaves like me and likes the stuff I like. Forgive us when we turn away people who Jesus welcomes. Forgive us when we place ourselves in the righteous group. Help us to see the error in our ways. Help us to know that the kingdom is open to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they don't have it yet, because they crave it and they need it and they want it. And thank you that in Jesus Christ, we can be granted this righteousness. Holy Spirit, make it so. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. May we be a place that brings peace to a difficult world. May we be a place that the down and out find a way up. May we be a place that brings health to a hurting world. Amen.